Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and today I'm lucky enough to be in conversation with Elizabeth Lesser, author of a new book titled Cassandra Speaks. Before we get into her formal introduction, I'll just make our usual Banyan announcements. Although Banyan Books and Sound is located in the heart of Kitsilano at West Forth and Dunbar in Vancouver, BC, we do have people joining us from around the world, but we always like to acknowledge that Banyan Books is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Banyan Books is in its 50th year of business, 50 years as a local independent bookstore. So please support local independent bookstores everywhere. And just so everyone knows, we ship worldwide our website is banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Our amazing guest today, I would say, is Elizabeth Lesser. She's a best-selling author and co-founder of Omega Institute, the renowned conference and retreat center in Rhinebeck, New York. Elizabeth attended Barnard College, where she studied literature, and San Francisco State University, where she received a teaching degree. In 2011, she received an honorary doctorate from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto, Palo Alto California. Early on in her career, Elizabeth was a midwife and birth educator. For many years, she was a student of the Sufi master, Pir Vilayat Inayat Khan and also has studied with many different spiritual teachers, healers, psychologists, and philosophers from other traditions. Elizabeth co-founded Omega Institute in 1977. Since then, the Institute has been at the forefront of holistic education, offering workshops and trainings, featuring a wide array of programs. She also co-founded the Omega Women's Leadership Center which grew out of the popular Women and Power Conference series. This series features women leaders, activists, authors, and artists from around the world. Our guest today has given two very popular TED Talks, one called Take the Other to Lunch, a call for civility and understanding as we negotiate our differences as human beings, and another TED Talk about the power of truth-telling. In 2008, she helped Oprah Winfrey produce a wildly popular 10-week online seminar based on Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth. She's been a guest on The Oprah Show, a frequent host on Oprah's Soul series, and is one of the Super Soul 100, a collection of 100 leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. Author of four books, The Seeker's Guide, Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, which is a New York Times bestseller, has been translated into 20 languages, sold over 500,000 copies worldwide. Her third book was Marrow, Love, Loss, and What Matters Most. And her latest book, Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, 
the human story changes. This book reveals how humanity has outgrown its origin tales and hero myths and empowers women to trust their instincts, find their voice, and tell new guiding stories. Banyan Books community, please join me in welcoming our honored guest today, Elizabeth Lesser. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So um, before we get into the reading, Elizabeth's going to do a reading for us from the book. I just want to find out from you, it seems like this book was many years in the making before you actually sat down to write it. Can you tell us a little bit about how this book came to be? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. Welcome everybody. I love the way people in Canada um, honor the land upon which they're sitting. That is such a beautiful tradition. Uh, we could do it in every country. I don't know why we don't. I really wanna find out, but this is not time to do that. Like how that started in Canada, but I'll answer your question. Sure, uh, sure. So yes, you're right. This book has been many years in the writing. People often ask me, how long did it take you to write this book? And this particular book, I'd say, oh, about 50. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I have walked these two different paths my whole life. One, a truly a feminist path. And by feminist, I mean this um, conviction coming out of outrage that like women's ways of being in the world have been so marginalized and disrespected and it's it's a loss for humanity and it's just been a huge part of my life to want to right that wrong and then also I've been a spiritual seeker which um you know, our goal as spiritual seekers is to be in unity consciousness, to let things like male, female, all our differences dissolve, melt away into our knowing of oneness. So it's been this um, dual path of like, yeah, but women's voices and but we're all the same. So as I, as I started to think of writing this book, born out of these conferences that I have curated for 20 years that I call Women and Power. Um, I really wanted to find a way to write a book about feminism that also honors everyone. A way to like tell the story of, of a feminist concern so that men don't feel that it's kind of a book against you know, an inclusive way of looking at this subject that can be very um, uninclusive at times. So it, 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 it literally took me about four years to write, but it's also the fruit of so many years of my life's work. Yeah, and really thank you for taking the time to, to make this book a reality. Um, there's a wonderful uh, passage from the book that you're going to read for us. I think it was called Know Her Name. Yeah, uh, I, I, I sent Ross a whole bunch of different things I could read from the book. And this was the one he chose. And I'm so happy you did because I really love 
I love this reading this passage. So it is called Know Her Name. It's about a five to six minute read. So sit back and enjoy the read. Um, I've, I've edited a little bit. So um, it's about a walk I took through Central Park a couple of years ago. I entered the park and came upon a large bronze statue that I've passed many times before. Seven larger than life soldiers cast in bronze, one carrying a dying bloodied brother in his arms. This time I stopped to read the inscription on the base of the monument, 7th Regiment in Memoriam, 1917 through 1918. Oh, World War I, a war memorial. As I stood in front of the statue, I thought, how interesting, how strange that humanity singles out war as the one form of boldness to memorialize. I kept walking and before long, I got to the Grand Army Plaza, the gateway to Central Park. There, rising tall above the crowd of pedestrians, was a statue of the Civil War Union General, William Sherman, perched high on a horse, being led by an angel. Sherman is known for liberating the South from the Confederate Army, and he's also credited with the mass destruction of Atlanta during his notorious march to the sea. Later, as commanding general of the Indian Wars, Sherman's policies included the first establishment of reservations, the killing of those who resisted relocation, and the starvation of the remaining free-roaming Plains Native Americans by the mass eradication of buffalo herds. Again, I stopped to behold this statue. It's hard not to pay attention to it. General Sherman and his horse and the angel are covered completely in 24 karat gold leaf. I sat on a bench and wondered, why of all the people in the world does General Sherman get to sit on a gilded horse forever in Central Park in New York City? And why is this the same all around the world? Doesn't matter where you are, in Paris, passing the Arc de Triomphe, or in Volograd, Russia, beholding the massive war statue the motherland calls, or in Cambodia, in the temple ruins, where mile-long walls depict religious battles, or on the mall in our nation's capital, wherever you are on this planet, it seems to have been decided long ago that history would be annotated by the warriors, and that courage, boldness, and strength would be associated with a willingness to fight and die for your ethnicity or religion or country. I used to wonder about this as a kid. Why in school did we have to memorize the dates of battles and wars or the names of the men who invented the atom bomb, but not the names of the people who invented things like the washing machine or solar panels or the birth control pill? Certainly these discoveries which by the way, all involved women inventors and investors, also changed the course of history. Who chose violent conflict 
as the one human activity to laud over all others. When I became a midwife and I witnessed the courage of laboring women, I wondered what if next to a statue of a warrior holding his bloody comrade, sculptors had also been commissioned to represent a woman delivering a baby, strong and noble, and yes, bloody. Does that sound preposterous, gory, gross? Why? Blood is blood, whether it's spilled on the battlefield as a young person dies or in the delivery room as new life is born. Now, I'm a realist. I know that human behavior can become so twisted that if allowed to reach a boiling point, some kind of force is required to stop it. But that does not mean we should celebrate violent force as a defining sign of heroism. What happens to human consciousness when we memorialize the dates of battles and we pass the war monuments and we sing anthems with lyrics laced with bombs bursting in air? Jose Ortega y Gasset, the 19th century Spanish philosopher said, tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. We have paid a lot of attention to violence and warriors. Search online for the top 10 events in American history. I did this. On the first site, all 10 events were wars or attacks or assassinations. Some with the sec same with the second list. The third list had the Apollo flight to the moon plus nine violent incidents. Really? These are the events we want to know ourselves by? Tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. Tell me what would happen to us as a culture if a statue of Rosa Parks were placed right next to the Lincoln Memorial and Miss Parks was as big and bold as the commander in chief. Or if next to the Vietnam War Memorial, there was a similar wall with thousands of names of the people who have honed other ways of dealing with conflict, like communicating, forgiving, mediating, working for justice so that the economic and social conditions that spawn unrest are transformed before they explode. How about monuments to the teachers who guide our children or mental health experts who help people heal internal wounds before they inflict external wounds on others, or the nannies and home health aides and hospice workers, the farmers and earth stewards, the everyday citizens who feed and house and give jobs and hopes to others. There are 29 sculptures in Central Park and not one honors historical women. But I am happy to learn that an organization called the Monumental Women's Statue Fund launched a campaign in 2014 to construct Central Park's first monument honoring real women. And because of their persistence, a statue honoring Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Sojourner Truth will be the first monument in Central Park's 166 year history to depict real life women and will celebrate the largest nonviolent revolution 
in America's history, the movement for a woman's right to vote. Won't it be great for little boys and girls to walk through the park and see those images and ask their parents, who are those ladies? What did they do? How did they do it? Tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. Thank you, Elizabeth, it's so wonderful. Um, the stories that we pay attention to, you start the book with origin stories, Eve, Pandora, Cassandra, these myth mythologies and religious stories. Why is it so important for us to look back at our history and the stories that we're telling to shape our present and our future? There's a wonderful historian. Um, her name is Sally Roche Wagner. And most of us don't know her name um, because she's called a feminist historian, which in itself is kind of ridiculous because she tells history through the lens of women. Therefore, she's not a historian. She's a feminist historian. But anyway, she has a famous quote, which is, history isn't what happened. It's who tells the story. So what we have taken as history are the words of people, usually men, all the way back to our origin stories, like, like the Old Testament and New Testament and all the Greek myths and other, I'm talking about Western culture right now. Um, we have taken this to be history, just the way humans are. This is what we do. This is what happened. But they're really stories told by people. You know, we're seeing right now how um, with the real uh, bifurcation in the way some people get news from a conservative site, some people get news from a liberal site, we actually begin to think differently, like those who are watching this television news that's what's happening. And those over here, this is what's happening. We have two whole different ideas of reality. And um, humanity has bought one idea of, of reality over all these years. Uh, so take even the story of Adam and Eve, for example. This is our origin story. Even if you weren't raised in a religious home, this is what we think happened. The man was born first in this perfect garden, and then God thought Adam needed a helpmate, and so he made Eve second. So she was born second, but she was first to sin. So this is clings to women and men, this idea that man was born first, and therefore he was the first thought of God. Woman came second as a way to serve him, and we blew it. We screwed up, women. We got ourselves kicked out of the garden because we were too curious. And you might think, oh, come on, that story is so old. Nobody believes it anymore. But it sticks to us. And most women have carded with us over history, this sense of shame of like there's something kind of second rate about us, we should keep our voice down, there's something sort of sinful about our bodies, and men do have a sense of entitlement as being um, 
firstborn uh, kind of model human and women were an afterthought. That's just one story. There's so many that I talk about in the book. Yeah. And, and of course, Cassandra, the, the, the namesake of the book, Cassandra Speaks. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that myth just so they have the context? Yeah. I love Greek myths. I've always loved them. And I loved, you know, reading the Odyssey and the Iliad. But I always had this feeling like, well, where were the women? You know, what happened in the homes? What were they up to? But you don't really hear much about women in the Greek myths unless they're doing something really wrong or they're cursed or something. And Cassandra is a typical Greek myth about a woman. She was the most beautiful princess in all the land of Troy. Her father was the king of Troy, King Priam. And all the men, even the gods, wanted, wanted her, wanted to marry her or sleep with her. You have to remember again, just like Adam and Eve, this is a story someone told. This isn't like what happened. Obviously, I'm talking about Zeus and Apollo, who are God figures. So men told these stories. Uh, so Cassandra didn't want to marry anyone. She wanted to serve the goddesses. And the men were after her, even Zeus, even Apollo. And Apollo was the one who offered her the gift she couldn't refuse. He offered her the gift of prophecy, that she would see the truth, she would see into the future, and she'd know it, and she would be able to tell her people, warn her people, do this, don't do that. She, she wanted that, so she accepted the gift. She didn't understand it came with the payment to be, his, to be Apollo's concubine, so she accepted it, and then he tried to sleep with her right then and there, and she refused, and he put a curse on her. The story is told, he spit into her mouth a curse. And the curse was, you will speak the truth, you will know the truth, but no one will believe you. So indeed, she would see in her mind's eye, the Trojan War, she would warn her brothers, you're all going to die. She would tell her mother, tell your sons not to go to war. She would tell the culture things. No one would believe her. They thought she was crazy. And of course, everything came true that she said. And eventually she went mad from knowing the truth and saying the truth and not being believed. And as I was reading and studying that myth and writing about it, here in America, there was a trial that was being televised uh, nationally on TV, the trial of a doctor, Dr. Larry Nasser, who had done these faux medical treatments on hundreds and hundreds of girl athletes, uh, uh, Olympic winning gold gymnasts and soccer players and baseball players, all kinds of female athletes. And for 30 years, he had been sexually molesting these little girls in the um, pretense of giving them physical therapy. And um, the judge in the case did something very unusual where she allowed any girl who wanted to testify to speak and 125 girls and women crowded into the courtroom 
and she made Dr. Nasser listen to each one of them. As she told what had happened, she told her truth, she told her experience, and for the first time, people believed each woman telling her story. In the past, the girls had told their parents, they had told their coaches, they had told their universities, they told all the way up to the United States Olympic Committee, but no one believed them. They took the word of this one doctor over hundreds and hundreds of girls telling their truth. And so uh, this judge let each girl speak. And as I watched that trial, I thought these are our Cassandras, but what's different here is we're hearing them now and we're believing them now and we're legitimizing and validating their experience and their story. That's, that was the moment I decided of all the stories I was retelling in the book to call the book Cassandra Speaks. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it, it seems to be almost unthinkable that this could happen. And yet it's not, I mean, that's a, a very extreme example, but it's not rare to hear these stories worldwide. It's shocking. And it's not just, as you say, as exaggerated as this story. It's not even only about um, sexual abuse or um, harassment. In fact, that's not the major thing I'm talking about in the book at all. It's more um, the way we women ourselves don't trust our own voices, don't trust our instincts um, enough to have the courage that once we get into any kind of position of power, whether it's in our family or at work or bigger than that, to say what we know, to say what we know in our hearts and our bones and to insist that the world takes it as seriously as other value systems. Yes, yes, which Brings me to the next question. In the first chapter on power stories, you mention your own experiences around trying to change the story of power in, in your own life. And you realize that you needed to make some inner changes. And I'll quote you, you said, to dredge up your personal power, your inner strength, inherent dignity, your self-worth. And then the challenging part came, you mentioned the layers and layers of self-doubt, unexplored and unexpressed anger, and a slew of other problems that were covering your authentic power. Why is this such a common experience for women who are trying to find their power and authentic voice? Well, in some way, it's, it's a struggle for anyone. Um, it's a struggle for most of us who are born human and you come into life with a radiant, creative soul you know as a as a former midwife I would always marvel when a baby was born and I would look at this little baby and I would remember the Wordsworth poem trailing clouds of glory from which we come and I would think oh wow this baby has, is trailing light and just uh, I could see the soul right there and it's so pure and so ready to take on the world with its funny blend of soulfulness and uh, ancestral power and story and 
astrology or whatever it is that makes up each individual. And then, of course, you grow up and your parents put a layer over your soul and then your culture does and school does and religion does. And you get to like age 20 and you're like, I have a soul. I have an individuality. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to find it. It's almost a bad joke. But it's even harder for women. And it's even harder for, let's say, a woman of color or anyone who comes from a group that has been marginalized and told there's something second rate about you, because we believe that. We believe the stories we're told, especially if everyone's telling the same story. So um, your question, why is it so hard for women to uncover that authentic voice? Well, one reason is that if women actually can quiet the other voices in the culture, I happen to believe that deep down in most women's soul is a different way of doing power than the way it's being done now. The idea of power as domination and power like those statues in Central Park that I read about the idea of the hero being, you know, on the horse like this. There's other ways of doing power, more inclusive, more interested in um, everyone joining together and like the leader being the head of empowering everyone. There's so many studies done from business and the military, governments, um, corporate corporations that show when women are in leadership and enough of them in a particular organization, power is done differently. We've seen it all during COVID, the women the countries led by women have had a much better rate of um, not having as many people become ill and die from the pandemic. There's a plethora of studies done on women and leadership and empowerment. That doesn't mean every woman leader is good and every male leader is bad, but um, women, should we be able to uncover our authenticity have an enormous opportunity now to teach the world how to do power differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Doing power differently. Um, what, what role do men need to play at this time? I mean, you, you talked to me before we started uh, the interview, before we went live, you, you talked about um, uh, men, men need to sort of, give women the space to step forward, but also women not taking on the old patriarchal roles. You talk about doing power differently. So not getting in the door and perpetuating the same cycles. How does that actually look? What does that look like? It might be foreign to a lot of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's foreign to all of us as anything that hasn't been done very much is foreign to all of us. You know, in my country now, in the United States, we're seeing the painful process of undoing the guiding story of, of white supremacy. We see what it looks like, how, how troubled the path is to undo an old, old story that's lodged 
in our consciousness, even though we hardly know it's there. So we can forgive ourselves for not quite knowing what it's gonna look like. And we can be really careful, as you say, as we all go toward a goal. You know, Nietzsche, the, the great German philosopher said, be careful when you're fighting monsters that you don't become one. And so it's not like once women get power, that means everything will suddenly be, you know, unicorns and roses. It's, it's, it's gonna be a, a, an interesting path, but I, I, a way I often try to describe it is there's a science story. It's not just uh, religious stories or, or myths that we cling to. Science has given us stories that end up turning out not to be real. And there's a, a the fight or flight story. I'm calling it a story because um, in the 1940s, 30s and 40s and 50s, um, there was a Harvard psychology researcher who brought people into his laboratory to study what happens when human beings are under stress or trauma. He was going to measure their uh, stress hormones to see what is the uh, response of most human beings under stress. So he brought hundreds of hundreds of people into his lab and he simulated stressful traumatic situations and he measured the chemistry in their blood, their hormones. And he was the one who came up with the term fight or flight. That under stress, all human beings either get aggressive, fight, or they flee and, and not just run away, detach. Um, fast forward to the first years of the 2000, a researcher at, at UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, Shelley Taylor, another doctor of psychology, she and her team noticed a funny thing. All the people brought into the lab in Dr. Walter Cannon's studies were men because in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, up until the 80s, only men were used for medical experiments across the board. And she replicated the studies with women. And she found, no, the stress hormones released in women under these simulated uh, stressful traumatic situations were not fight or flight. They were something she called tend and befriend. Under stress, many women, not all women, not women all the time, but many, um, yes, there was some fight or flight hormones released, but mostly it was something called tend and befriend, meaning under stress, women uh, want to tend to the most vulnerable in the community, the children, the older people, you know, helping them deal with the stressful situation. And under stress, their instinct is not to flee or to detach, it's to befriend. So like you come home from a miserable day at work, you've just had a horrible day. You don't like necessarily have a beer and watch television. You call your friends 
and you get support and you chat and you talk. This idea that women talk too much. No, women befriend. They, they heal through friendship. They don't detach. So when you ask what would a different way of doing power look like? Well, if we stopped assuming that all humans do under stress is fight or flee, if we were like, no, at least 50% of the time, we also tend and befriend. So let's uh, put our dollars not only behind the military, let's say, but into schools. Let's make sure we have an equal amount of funding for the, the tending and befriending aspect of our humanity. Let's not just honor uh, the soldiers, let's honor the home health care worker. Let's make sure we understand that women are 51% of humanity. Therefore, tend and befriend is a noble, valid way of thinking about what a hero is. So a hero is a teacher and a hero is a police person, both. And let's make sure that becomes our instinct. When someone says, that's heroic, we're talking about a kindergarten teacher. Let's not have that seem silly. So that's a big way of talking about how do we start doing power differently. There's littler ways too, which I get into in the book. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I really encourage people to read this book. Uh, it's, it's a really fantastic book. And I, I do want to just say to the, the, the cover artwork is it's the most beautiful book outside and inside that I've read this year. Um, I really love it. I just want to let our audience know that's here live. Um, we're going to take questions in about 15 minutes. So feel free to put your questions into the Q&A tab, not into the chat, but into the Q&A. And we'll hopefully get to as many of those questions for Elizabeth as we can. Um, you, you pointed to this idea that women talk too much. <laughs> and then in the book, you talk about, well, that's only within a certain context. If we look outside the bubble of, of what you call private conversation, relationships, friends, family, where women maybe do more talking, maybe, then, then we look at the, the, the rest of the sphere, which you call public speaking. And it's major, majority is men speaking. Can you just comment a bit on those two phenomena? Well, in the vernacular, that probably sounds offensive to men. I always get to like try things like this out on my husband. Um, the word is mansplaining. Yes. Um, so this is this phenomenon. And anyone who works in a large organization of like more than five people, let's say, um, there is a phenomenon still in meetings, or this has been researched a lot in the university setting in classrooms, that men and young men and all men tend to show much more confidence speaking. And women um, have this idea that if we're gonna take up space, uh, space either through talking or, or just through being, 
we have to apologize. There's there's a big tendency in women to say things like, now maybe you don't understand this, so this is all I believe. Let me just, you know, this big preamble to how we're speaking, like apologizing even for having an opinion and then speaking. Now, some of what's going on in women is a beautiful thing. It's a humility that would be wonderful for all of us to adopt. Um, So it's not that I would like women to start women-splaining all the time. It's more that women need to feel um, valid and legitimate in offering our opinion, not this fear that if I offer my opinion, it's going to take up too much space or hurt someone else's feelings. There's so much emotional machinations that go on in women as we're speaking. And men also must learn how to listen better and how to wait. And it's this dance that women and men can help each other do. Men helping women um, by giving more space and listening and women not necessarily having to make men wrong in order to get our voice heard, but just to become so comfortable in our own skin that it's natural to offer an opinion and it's fine to do so. And it doesn't mean you're not uh, a good person. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about this um, feminine principle. So you walk this fine line, this razor's edge of, women having a voice saying, yes, there are problems, there are issues, we do need to speak up, absolutely. And at the same time, there's this spiritual aspect of oneness, sameness, and there's this inner feminine, inner masculine principle. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your outlook on the feminine principle and what that looks like in action in women or in men? It's, tr- it's tricky territory saying mm-hmm. feminine and masculine, especially these days when the whole concept of gender is becoming much more fluid. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited that people are feeling less constrained by gender being such a, uh, a specific box. At the same time, I actually do uh, believe and experience that there is such a thing as a feminine principle and a masculine principle. What's wonderful about what's going on now is that I think men are becoming less ashamed to proudly admit that they have the feminine within them, you know, for years, what I thought feminism meant was you would tell a little girl, you can be anything your brother can be, or, or you can do anything a man can do. But we rarely say to boys, you can be anything a girl can be. And that, that just seems like I doubt many people have said to their little boys, you can be anything your sister can be. And that is is such a window into how we devalue the feminine and therefore make girls feel less than and make girls feel they have to be more like boys and 
And it's such a burden to put on little boys that you have to be this way only or you are not a boy and you are not a man. And in the masculine, there's no room for over-emotionality. You can't cry. You shouldn't feel. You shouldn't show your feelings. It's called the man box. And that's a prison for men, just as girls don't ever be aggressive, don't be ambitious, don't talk too much. That's the opposite of femininity. Both of these are prisons that um, men and women have lived in, and I do feel it melting some. But it's still, all you have to do is go onto a playground and watch little boys and girls. It is still alive and well. This bullying of a boy who doesn't act like a, the total uh, over-masculinized cultural idea of what a boy should be, and girls who are squashing their ambition right and left because it's not um, what girls should do. So the best of the masculine to me is um, the energy to go forward, to build, to be curious, not to be held back, to, to expand, to grow, to move, to create. That's the masculine spirit. And the best of the feminine spirit is to nurture and care and to feel and to be the emotional, um, the emotional tenders of the human garden, that's the best. And if, if I could wave a magic wand, we would all have an equal dose. That's probably not the way it's ever gonna be because there is such a thing as hormones. So the next best thing I would do the magic wand to is that all the tendencies in human beings, the tend and befriend, the, the more like going forth, that they're equally valued and funded and validated so that if a human being wants to be more feminine than masculine, it's also seen as a, as a value that is elevated in the world. Right. And I mean, just to give to someone who might say, oh, this is all great philosophical discussion. But, you know, when what does this matter? Can you this does matter in terms of where our world is at and the issues and challenges that we're facing. Can you talk a bit about how women and the feminine principle might impact positive change on our planet? Well, if indeed there's more of the desire to tend and befriend within the feminine principle, there is nothing the world needs more now than being tended. We've run amok with the masculine tendency to go, 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 build, 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 discover, 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 extract. Um, it's, it's taken a massive toll environmentally, financially, socially, in families, in governments. It's so lacking in the tend and befriend ethos where we would look at 
uh, a budget, let's say, of an organization or a country and say, we're going to slash the part of it that is furthering this extraction mentality. And we're going to we're going to just stop. We don't need to grow anymore. We're going to tend our garden and our people and our animals. We value the notion of tending and creating circles of caring, befriended peoples. Let's put all our energy, all our creativity, all our financial might behind that instinct. Let's give it a hundred years. Okay, we've had thousands of years where the other principle was at the forefront. Let's stop and give it over to people, maybe only women, but also men who, who are valuing the tend and befriend aspect of humanity. Let's give that a chance. Let's see what happens. What might it look like? I mean, in, in my mind, when I've reflected on this and spoken with the teachers and mentors in my life, a big part of it is not just the balance of the male and female or men and women, but actually mature men, like a mature man, a mature masculine man can access those tendon befriend principles within himself, but also he honors and empowers that in the others around him. How much of this is, is just a maturing process for human beings? Are, are we stuck in this kind of adolescence sort of mm. thing? Well, I think ultimately that is exactly it. And also a maturing process in women. Like there's internalized patriarchy in all of us. Uh, I, I know, I've watched it in myself as a leader of an organization. I've watched with horror sometimes at myself, the same old uh, fight or flight tendencies in me. It's, it's very hard to get your foot in the door of power and then not to start acting just like the people who are already in there because that's just the zeitgeist. That's the rules of the game. It's so hard to change something even as a woman, even as a feminist, even as someone who considers herself a somewhat mature human being. So it's not just men and their mature masculinity, it's also women and our mature femininity, and also people who have a beautiful balance of both. Are we stuck? Are we stuck in adolescence? We are in adolescence. Are we stuck? I don't really think so. But I think this is a, a long, long process. We're not going to do this in the next five years, 10 years, maybe even 100 years. And then there's this sense, but we don't have 100 years. The world is going to burn up. I don't think that way. You know, I'm definitely an, an environmental thinker. I'm fully aware of climate change and what's going on. But I'm also more hopeful I think we will slowly, slowly become more balanced, mature entities, us human beings. I, I do think we're on a path of evolution toward maturity, but it's a long path. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, 
What do you say to the, uh, in, in the book you cover um, some of the men who are, who feel feminism is an attack on masculinity and that our culture is being over feminized all of a sudden, you know, you get these, these arguments and this pushback when you talk about empowered women. And I think a lot of men might feel threatened by it or they take the wrong end of the stick. They misinterpret the message. What do you say to men with that make those kinds of arguments that masculinity is under attack? Well, actually in the book, I, I write a letter to um, Dr. Jordan Peterson, one of your country's leading thinkers. Um, I, he and quite a few other really, really smart men believe that, that masculinity is under attack and that's a bad thing. And many people have said that that letter I write to Dr. Peterson is one of their favorite parts of the book. I actually yeah. sent it to him, but I never heard back from him. Yeah. So if any of you know him, tell him I'm waiting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's... You know, on the one hand, what I'd want to say is, yeah, it is under attack. Like there are aspects of it that absolutely need to change. And the only way to get your attention, people, is to be very forceful. Um, that doesn't mean that specific men are under attack. Uh, whenever a woman is strong, forceful, and saying something that a man doesn't like doesn't mean that you are personally being attacked. Men have this odd combination of, of dominating yet being terrified of women, and especially terrified of strong women. And throughout history, strong women have been punished in all sorts of ways, whether it's the Salem witch trials or it's Sigmund Freud saying that all men, you know, are afraid of their mothers or whatever it is, to be a strong woman has been something that not only is it hard just to be a strong human being, but strong women have just been called everything from witches to angry black women to you're too much, you're intense. You know, if a man has said, he's an intense dude, you're like, ooh, interesting. If she's an intense woman, you're like, calm down, lady. So um, the feminization of the culture, if what men mean by that is women are getting too uppity, I have no, I have no uh, patience for that. But if what men mean is my very way of being feels under attack, I don't know how to change fast enough to accommodate this. Let's talk about this. I don't understand you. I feel if it's that, I'm all for those kind of beautiful, deep conversations where men and women can, can hold each other through these changing times. You know, I have three sons. I've been married twice to men. I, I love men and I love the men in my life. And I love more than anything, 
deep conversations between men and women where we're, we're really listening to each other. Women don't listen to men just as much as men don't listen to women. This is not only a man's problem. This is all of us having to find new guiding stories, new ways of talking to each other. Yes, wonderfully said, thank you. Now we're gonna to get to some audience questions. Thanks everybody for keeping sending in your questions. The first one is from Carrie. Carrie says, my daughter is currently studying history her second year and has had no, intro no introduction to a feminine perspective on history. I'm wondering where to start shaking this tree. Are there best practices for students who are curious about other historical perspectives to advocate for changes in curriculum? Oh, that question makes me wanna cry, both from the fact that it's still like that and from your, uh, your looking at it that way and you're caring for it. I bow to you, thank you. Um, well, the first thing would be, depending on where your daughter is in school, is along with taking the regular history classes, to look into if there's any women's studies classes. Women's studies departments are brilliant. They, there are ways, I, I look back to my early studies when I was at Columbia University way back in the 1970s. Um, <laughs> and my first course in feminist thinking absolutely transformed the way I looked at everything. I was a literature student, so it changed the way I looked at literature and light bulbs went out. Why am I only reading Russian men? What, what, where are the women writers? It began to seem like, like a natural question for me to ask in any realm that I was in. Where are the women's point of view? And so if she, it's not so much for her to necessarily um, know immediately what other books to read, but to gain a sense of confidence in herself that she could even go to her professor and say, this is a very imbalanced curriculum you've got here. Have you noticed that 92% of the books we're reading were written by men? What's that all about? There's got to be other parts of history than just the wars and the conquests. What were the women doing? How were people feeding people? How were people tending to each other? What happened in schools? I don't wanna just learn about this aspect of history. History isn't what happened, it's who tells the story. My favorite feminist historian, so-called, is, um, oh God, help me, I, one second here because she's so important, is Gerda Lerner. Gerda, G-E-R-D-A, Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R. -E -E Read her books and share them with your daughter. Mm -hmm. Thank you. From Sue, she says, we're reading your book in my book club. 
Do you have an opinion about the criticism aimed at Marianne Williamson for wanting to create a Department of Peace to go alongside the Department of War? I don't know if the criticism was about Marianne. She gets a lot of criticism. She's like a lightning rod. Um, or about the Department of Peace, but I think it's I think it's a fantastic idea, a Department of Peace. It would be great if we didn't need it. I think a lot of the criticism has been we don't need it. We we just need to you know be the peace ourselves. But as long as there are departments of war, as long as there are universities that study war and the military, we need to study peace. We need to study nonviolence. Everyone needs to know how, how did Dr. Martin Luther King change the national dialogue in this country, in the United States of America, without violence? What about Gandhi? What about those women who got the, the right to vote without violence. What are What is the uh, science of peace? Nonviolent communication. There are actual um, studied, researched ways of having conversations, talking against differences, not meeting uh, conflict with violence. We need to study them. We need to research them, what works, what doesn't work, what's just a bunch of nice flowery language and what actually works when people are in, in tremendous conflict with each other. Uh, so I'm all for it. Mariana asks you, Elizabeth, how can women help? She's looking for practical examples. How can women help other women deconstruct the patriarchy in them? Hmm. Um, I came up with a word a few years ago and then I found out other people had been using it anyway. I call it, I called it womance. You know how there's bromances, uh, the, bro, the bro movies. I came up with the word womance for the kind of relationships I have with women who want to deconstruct patriarchy within and without. Um, I have a friend who is a nun, a Catholic nun. Her name is Sister Joan Chittister. She's one of those nuns that have stood up to the Vatican and still remained a nun for like 70 years. And Sister Joan, uh, and I were talking on the phone one day and I said something to her like, Sister Joan, you're a, you are a kick-ass nun. And she said, no, don't use the word kick-ass. Use the word leaven. Leaven, like what the agent that raises bread. You are leaven. <clears throat> Go out and be leaven with a group of women and try to raise each other up. So I am all for romances and leaven, that women, we have to support each other. And I, I don't believe in the myth that women naturally don't support each other. You know, the cat fight idea. I think that's some sort of male fantasy that women fight all the time. But the most important thing for me that's helped me the most 
are the women who have my back. And I, I think for us to start having each other's back. So let's say you're in a meeting at work and you notice a fellow colleague isn't speaking, but you know she has a lot to say because outside of the meeting, she, she has said it. And so you say, Kathy, what do you think? And Kathy's like, and that's okay. No, hey, everybody, let Kathy have a chance to speak because she has an amazing idea. Things like that to give the floor to women, especially to marginalized women, women of color, women who are super shy, like help women find their voices. We've got time for one last question. This is from Ren. She says, can you speak a little bit about how the darker aspects of the feminine get in our way of fully stepping into the tend and befriend in these power positions of our culture today? What resistance can we expect to come up against? Mm. Oh, what a great question. Uh, I have a part in the book about the shadow, which is the Jungian Jungian concept that all of us have these hidden dark things bubbling around in our psyche and we don't we don't want to be like that so we push them away and pretend we aren't like that and then they bubble up once the um, social psychologist Brene Brown was speaking at Omega Institute and she was telling this story that she had been uh, working with a group of leaders in a corporation and the men admitted that, that um, whenever they tried to be more sensitive in their marriages, their, their wives who want them to be that way also punish them when they're that way because we're all still stuck in this thing of wanting men to save us and to be a certain way. And she was driving home from that meeting, Brene Brown, and she said to herself, holy shit, I'm the patriarchy. And I often feel that in myself at home and at work. I talk a good game about being more tendy and befriendy, but under pressure, I often just start acting exactly the way everybody else does. So I think it's really important for women to be super honest in our self-reflection. And when you feel yourself um, being the way, especially in leadership positions, and I don't just mean like you're a CEO, I mean as a mother, uh, as a partner, what, whatever, be super self-reflective. Be aware when you're not, not, you know, you don't have to be a perfectionist about it. We're all going to screw up all the time. But just be aware of yourself and try to hold yourself to a higher standard um, and help other women and men along the way. I didn't answer that very well. I'm sorry. But I think you'll find more information about it in the book. Absolutely. And I, I think I actually, I mean, I've read the book, so I, I know your answer in the book. And I gleaned more from what you just said as well. Um, one of the beautiful things in the book is the end you give these different practices. And one of them, and you have a TED talk about it, is taking the other to lunch. 
maybe we can finish with some ideas from you on how we can bridge the gap here. How can we continue this conversation in our Western culture and in all different cultures where this is an issue, this gender divide, this uh, divide between masculine and feminine principles and bring the healthy male, healthy masculine, healthy female, healthy feminine to the forefront through those conversations? What can we do? How can we keep that going? Well, I don't have like here are the five steps to completely healing this problem. <laughs> this is an ancient, ongoing, evolutionary problem. And as you said, ultimately it's about spiritual maturity. So what, what works with spiritual maturity in bridging gaps between men and women, between racial divides or political divides. The first thing is, is becoming a good listener. We think we're right. You know, our egos want to be right. Our egos are desperate to be right. So much so that um, we don't listen to each other. There's just an assumption that I know you don't know, listen to me. And the other person is locked in the same ego thing. So sorry, everybody. It's the same hard work for this as it is for everything in our life. It's calming our child ego. It's um, following our heart deep, deep into the well of love and dredging up love for that other being, even when we want to wring their neck. It's every spiritual practice you've ever heard of, meditation so that you calm the reactivity and strengthening your body so that you actually fall in love with your body, especially for women. That's a powerful practice. So it's not that different then all the other things, those of you who love this beautiful bookstore study, um, the spiritual arts, to become a, a, a wise spiritual being and to bring that out into the world through everything we do. Wonderful. Elizabeth Lesser, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and for all the work that you've done and continue to do. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being such a thoughtful interviewer. Thank you, everybody, for sticking with me on this beautiful Sunday. Just a reminder, if anybody wants to learn more about Elizabeth and her work, you can visit her website, www.elizabethlesser.org. And if you'd like to purchase any of her books, but particularly her new one, Cassandra Speaks, when Women Are the Storytellers, The Human Story Changes. You can buy it from anywhere in the world on our website, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, or you can pop into the store anytime between 11 and 7 in Kitsilano and Vancouver. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And Elizabeth, thanks again. been listening to In Conversation, a podcast with Banyan Books and Sound.